from the newsroom of the Washington Post. Washington Post, this is Colby. Yeah. Hello, 老师你好，我是华盛顿邮报记者施嘉欣。Hi, it's Stephanie McCrumman from the Washington Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Thursday, July 18th. Today, how white identity has reshaped the Republican Party, and the history of telling minorities to go back to where they came from. And obviously, and importantly. Omar has a history of launching vicious anti-Semitic screeds. On Wednesday night, President Trump held a rally in North Carolina, and he continued his attacks on four Democratic Congresswomen. He was talking about comments they've made, often distorting what they'd actually said to make the case that. Their criticisms of the U.S. were somehow beyond the pale, and showed that they didn't like the country they lived in, which is also not what they say. Michael Shear is a national political reporter for the Post, and at that rally, Trump singled out Representative Ilhan Omar of Minnesota, who escaped Somalia as a child and later became a U.S. citizen. So the crowd started chanting spontaneously. It appeared. Send her back when he was talking about Representative Ilan Omar, which was three of the words that were in his tweet on Sunday. And she talked about the evil Israel, and it's all about the Benjamins. Not a good thing to say. So, that's Omar. That's Omar. Can we just go back and can you explain how we got to this moment and what kind of started all of this off? So Sunday morning, President Trump woke up at the White House. He'd been watching Fox and Friends, which, as is often the case now, had several segments on four Democratic members of Congress who sort of colloquially become known as the Squad, who are more progressive than most of the caucus and and more outspoken. And their fights within the House Democratic group over policy and ideas, which had become kind of bitter over recent weeks. And he put out three tweets without telling anybody else in his campaign or other people in the White House. He decided to write out. So interesting to see progressive Democrat Congresswomen who originally came from countries whose governments are a complete and total catastrophe, the worst, most corrupt and inept anywhere in the world. If they even have a functioning government at all, now loudly and viciously telling the people of the United States, the greatest and most powerful nation on earth, how our government is to be run. Why don't they go back and help fix the totally broken and crime-infested places from which they came? Then come back and show us how it is done. These places need your help badly. You can't leave fast enough. But three of the four were born in the United States. Rashida Tlaib was born in. Michigan. Ayanna Presley was born in Illinois. Alexandria Ocasio Cortez was born in New York. Only one of them, Ilan Omar, was born in Somalia. She immigrated. All four of them are citizens. All four of them are elected leaders in the United States. And so many people saw the subtext of that tweet as as racist, as excluding people who who are non-white from the American conversation. And it's interesting because these tweets came in response to the fact that there has been a lot of public. 
discussion about the tensions within the Democratic Party. But then after President Trump tweeted this, we actually saw this like moment of the Democratic Party coming together and Nancy Pelosi coming out really strong on this. What was the reaction from her and from other people in Democratic leadership? These comments from the White House are disgraceful and disgusting, and these comments are racist. Nancy Pelosi responded very quickly. Within hours, she was on Twitter. She said this is evidence that President Trump wants to make America white again, that that's really the the subtext. There is no place anywhere for the president's words, which are not only divisive, but dangerous, and have legitimized and increased fear and hatred of new Americans and people of color. And then we saw this resolution that Democrats introduced in the House basically condemning President Trump's remarks. What was that resolution all about? Well, it was a way for Nancy Pelosi to bring her caucus together. And it it basically said, you know, described uh, the tweets from Sunday as racist. Telling four members of this body to go home because of where you believe they are from is racist. There is racism coming out of the White House. His comments were beneath the dignity of the office of the president of the United States, and they have no place in our country. And make no mistake, when people tell me to go back to where I came from, that is a racist insult because it's based on race. If I was white, they would not tell me to go back to China. And it was sort of a sense of the House that, that the president had done something racist. Every single member of this institution, Democratic and Republican, should join us in condemning the president's racist tweets. To do anything less would be a shocking rejection of our values and a shameful abdication of our oath of office to protect the American people. And did Republicans sign on to this? For the most part, no. There were less Republicans who voted along with us. I think the total number was four than had spoken out against the president's tweets. His advisors, many Republicans in Washington, were really concerned about that tweet on Sunday. And they did feel it was racially insensitive. Some said it, but many did not. And they do think that that there could be a backlash that comes from that, uh, particularly among college-educated whites and and driving up turnout among non-whites in in the coming election. But they also feel that there is a untapped non-college white voter base that will be necessary for Trump to win in 2020. And so Trump is appealing to what he believes is a really emotional sort of identity issue among this population to try and get people who don't normally vote, who don't think politics is for them, who don't think they have a role in this whole discussion, to feel like they have a role in this discussion. But if you say that there is this sense behind the scenes that even Republicans look at President Trump's tweets and see, A, something that is racist, and B, something that is politically risky, then why are almost all Republicans siding with him? It's politically risky, but it but it has clear benefits and downsides. And and showing division within the party is even more politically risky. So I, I don't think even even those Republicans who see this as un-American or racist also believe that airing that dirty laundry publicly would hurt themselves personally because it would attract the ire of President Trump, who's shown he can be pretty effective at tearing apart his fellow Republicans and potentially divide the Republican coalition, which they need to hold together. And what is the calculus here in terms of how this rhetoric and these tweets might play out for people potentially deciding whether or not to vote for President Trump or for other Republicans who will be up for re-election? I think it really depends on who you're talking about in in the electorate. 
there's a lot of social science research, there's a lot of polling to suggest that people react to this very differently along racial lines, along education lines. And there is some evidence that this sort of nativism, the discussions of immigration that go beyond just pure nativism, are a pretty good dividing issue for Democrats. White-collar Democratic voters, people who voted for Obama in 12 and 8, switched to vote for Trump in a number of key states. And one of the indications of why they did that is they are far more conservative than their party on issues of immigration and race. There's also this question of whether there are an untapped non-voting group of blue-collar white voters that the president will be able to bring to the polls. On the flip side, college-educated whites, suburban women particularly, showed in the 2018 election that they are really unhappy with this same behavior. And a lot of historically Republican voting people in these suburbs voted for Democratic members of Congress last cycle. And Democrats are counting on them to vote for the Democratic nominee this cycle. So even though college-educated whites, white women, that they did vote for Trump in 2016. That's right. There was a switch. They pulled away. I mean, they didn't overwhelmingly vote for President Trump. Trump lost, uh, you know, compared to the historical norms. Part of that was Hillary Clinton was on the ballot, and that appealed to a lot of uh, women voters. But yes, there was a shift from 16 to 18. And there was also a shift in turnout among Latino voters and young voters. There was not higher in numbers, but compared to similar elections, a pretty big bump in young people participation, Latino participation in the 2018 midterms, which could indicate, and some people, some Democrat strategists are suggesting this, that in 2020, you're going to get a much bigger turnout than you got in 16. Then in 16, the threat that Donald Trump presented to them was sort of an abstract one. No one thought he was actually going to win. Now it's a reality they live with on their day-to-day basis, and that, and that could hurt Trump. So the idea for some Republicans is that if there are these various demographics that they are beginning to think that they might lose anyways, college-educated white voters, Hispanics, that they want to kind of focus on activating the people that they feel really confident about. And that is non-college-educated white voters. And that, in part, some of what we're hearing is an attempt to basically get them excited. I think they're going to do both, but there is a the trade-off, and they're going to have to manage the trade-off. At the rally last night, for instance, President Trump mentioned that a majority of the new jobs that had been created in the previous year had gone to women. I mean, he's clearly making a pitch to women voters in a way that he didn't do as explicitly before. I think there's going to be a lot coming out of the Trump campaign about Democrats and taxes, Democrats and taking away your health care. Those are messages for suburban voters. But they also want to do this other thing. And the nativism, you know, the, the send her back chance at the rally will turn off or prevent Republicans from getting you know, making too many inroads among college-educated whites. And the bet is that that will be more than compensated for by bringing out higher numbers of non-college-educated whites. I think what's really interesting in what we're seeing now is the fact that white identity politics have always existed, right? We've always had white presidents who appeal to white people in certain ways. But the fact that it's more open now and the fact that we're talking openly about it and able to identify that now kind of changes the game in some ways. I think we've also had a shift uh, in the in the way this is being expressed. Now, the, the way it was historically expressed was in the context of the civil rights movement in the 1960s and the reforms that came afterwards. There was real concern among whites, particularly in the South, that giving more rights to black Americans would hurt them going forward. And a lot of that was still outwardly racist. It was expressed as being racist. 
a lot of the people who support Trump are determined to make clear that they do not believe they are racist. They don't think that blacks are different than them in any you know, substantive way or should be treated different from them. What, what they feel is that they are victims of a changing culture and they're not being recognized for it. And so, you know, when social scientists look at the question of white identity politics and, and how they're going to identify people who identify as whites, they ask questions like, how important is being white to your identity? How important is it that whites work together to change laws that are unfair to whites? Hmm. How likely is it that when many whites are unable to find a job because employers are hiring minorities instead? It's this idea of white solidarity that if in a shifting a country of shifting demographics, whites sort of need to band together to protect you know their culture, to protect their status in society. And so it's similar to the civil rights movement, but I think it's also different from where we were in the 1960s and, and how it carried over into the 70s and 80s. And Trump has been incredibly successful at finding that place. And that's why a lot of this is now in the frame of nativism. It's in the frame of the other is coming from outside the country. We're protecting you from them. It's, it, the subtext is our demographics, our country, who we are is changing. And at the core of that is this idea that the American ideal, you know, what, what is true American is what European immigrants created, you know, generations ago. And that any alteration of that is therefore a threat. And so it is similar to what, you know, George Wallace did or, you know, other presidential candidates, but it's also different. And I think in a way he's found something that is more motivating and explosive and effective politically than many people, including many Republicans, believed was possible. And the fact that President Trump has found that message that appeals to a certain type of white person that mixes racism with nativism, with with anti-immigrant sentiments, do you think that's permanently changed the landscape both for Republicans and for politics in general? Permanently is too strong a word. I think for the time being, it definitely has. You know, the, the parties shift dramatically over a 20, 30-year window. That'll continue to happen. But I don't think the Republican Party is anything like it was, you know, even five years ago before Trump came on the scene. You know, remember back then, Jeb Bush was sort of the presumptive Republican nominee, and he was basically campaigning as a, a bicultural Republican who could appeal to Hispanics and who welcomed, you know, new cultures into the country. That identity is no longer really a part of the Republican mainstream anymore, and, and at least for the foreseeable future, it won't be, Not, you know, definitely through the next election. And then depending on the outcome, it, we'll see what the Republican Party does. But there is not really a place for Republicans to be outspoken about benefits of cultural change right now. Michael Shear is a political reporter for The Post. The idea that America is only for a certain group of people, it's probably older than the idea that America is for everyone. That's Eugene Scott. And I write about identity politics for The Fix. 
And it was really interesting as I was doing some research, just seeing how many different groups have found themselves at the receiving end of these attacks. I, as a Black American, am very familiar with the go back to Africa trope, but this is not something that has been uniquely reserved for African Americans or Black people, although that it's primarily the group that has probably heard those tropes longest. Well, let's start with that one. What is the history of the Go Back to Africa movement? When did it kind of first take hold? And what was the reaction to that? Well, we know during the late, or should I say early 19th century, as the abolitionist movement was growing and we were moving closer to the end of slavery, there were some competing thoughts about what do we now do with all of these slaves? And there were organizations primarily headed by white individuals who were not supporters of slavery. They believed it to be inhumane, but they were not supporters of viewing black people as equal to white people with the same powers and privileges and rights as white Americans. And one of the solutions they suggested was to get these black people out of America, send them back to Africa. Some examples of that movement include the establishment of Liberia, and we see individuals on various sides of the issue embrace the idea that black people should not be here. And it was very interesting because there were black Americans or black people in America, should should I say, who did want to go to Liberia or the Caribbean or places where they could be more independent and not live under the pressure of racism. But there were also lots of black people who realized that they didn't know anything else but America and were very hesitant and unsupportive of the idea of going back to this place that they never were in the first place. And that one of the things that people were fighting for at that time was a sense of being considered profoundly American, that it wasn't just enough to be not enslaved or it wasn't just enough to have personal autonomy, but that it was important to be considered a natural-born American. Absolutely. And and this was in one of my pieces earlier. This is why the Civil War and the 14th Amendment were so important, because the thought was that if this could be a part of the Constitution, this would shut the go back to Africa movement down or at least make it not something that could actually be this like federal government mandated movement. I'm also curious about ways that this idea of going back to where you came from, how that's been communicated through history when it comes to white people. Yeah, yeah. I was reading earlier about the Know Nothings, and it's a a group that wanted to send Irish and Italian immigrants back to Italy and Ireland because they were viewed as being subversive, which I think, quite frankly, is how Trump is viewing these four Democratic lawmakers. They were viewed as trying to dismantle or alter or reshape what it meant to be American. And there was also some concern back then. It's fascinating how these stories repeat themselves, that these immigrants were taking jobs, Mm. something that we hear often in this current political climate. And so the breadth of different types of white people who were a part of this go back to where you come from idea towards other white people 
was vast. It just wasn't politicians. It was pastors as well. It was mm-hmm. people in the business community. It was artists. Well, because there was a lot of religious discrimination at that time, too, in terms of Irish Catholics and Italian Catholics. And this was a mostly Protestant country at the time. And that to be Catholic American was not a thing. To be Catholic meant that you were not truly American. Absolutely. And we saw these ideas resurface when President JFK, before he was elected, there was real fear that he would be taking his ideas about policy and politics to the Pope. And people who were not Catholic were incredibly anxious about that. I'm wondering why this type of rhetoric has been so politically expedient over the years. I think there are parts of America that look so very different from what they looked like 10 to 20 years ago that the change and adjustment that is required of some people who have more traditional ideas of America has been just really hard to adapt to. I used to be a reporter in Kansas, and one thing people aren't talking about a lot related to immigration is some of these small towns in America that have more or less been abandoned but are seeing a bit of a revitalization and are largely populated by immigrants. I mean, there are some towns in Kansas that are primarily Latino because the white people and maybe even black people who previously lived in them have fled them because of jobs and education and other factors. And so if you are some of the people who have remained around those spaces, that can be really difficult for you. And we saw data following the 2016 election that one of the reasons Trump won so much support, especially from the white working class of voters, was because of cultural anxieties. And that specifically meant how America was changing in terms of what it meant to be American, to be in grocery stores and hearing people speak languages that are very different from those that you grew up speaking and seeing restaurants in your community that serve food that you're not familiar with. While there are people in some parts of America who who would think that's an amazing and fascinating thing, there are quite a few people in this country who are just really anxious about what that means. And we're looking for a political leadership who could combat that and combat it aggressively. It's been really interesting to see what the reaction to President Trump's tweets have been this week, because by a lot of indications, it's been hyperpartisan um, and that whether or not you think his tweets are OK fall very much on political lines of whether or not you support the president. Why do you think that is or has that always been the case that to a large part of the population, this kind of rhetoric is acceptable? I think the acceptability of this type of rhetoric has grown in the recent years since Trump entered the Oval Office. We are seeing people say things out loud that they previously would not have said. But it's really difficult to measure if this is a pivot in worldview or if it's just a pivot in professed worldview. One thing we do know is that one of the reasons the president hasn't doubled down is because, and he said this, there are a lot of people who think like him. There was a Reuters poll the two days after the first tweets went out that showed that Trump's support among Republicans went up 5%. He is sharing the worldviews of significant percentages of America, especially his base. And so when he says the things that he says that gets him criticized from the left, 
he is actually saying the things that people wanted him to say, that he gave people an idea he would say when he announced his presidential campaign attacking Mexican immigrants and suggesting that there would, there would be deported. They would be deported. And so there really is support for this worldview. Eugene Scott writes about identity politics for The Post. Now, one more thing. This week, The Washington Post asked people to share times when they felt like outsiders in their own country. More than 80 people responded with their stories. Here are a few of them. I was a kid on the school bus, and there were white boys who said, go back to where you came from, calling me a refugee. And I'm Korean-American. I came when I was five. I was naturalized when I was 11. So I am a U.S. citizen. I remember walking down the street, and I was walking to work. Um, I was about 14 or 15. And a car of, you know, white teenagers rolled by, and all of them were screaming out. And they said, uh, go back to Africa. You know, and they used the N-word. And... I, that was like the first time I'd ever been called an N-word, but was more potent once they told me to go back to Africa. And I grew up poor. I'd never been out the country. I had no idea what that meant. And it just made me feel horrible. At that time, I talked to my father, who told me that that would happen to me all the time and that I should line the street wherever I walked all the time with bricks and rocks and stuff like that so I could protect myself because he said some, sometimes the cars stop. I came to the United States back in 1979 to start college in Southern California, Harvey Mudd College. And this was, of course, right during the height of the Iran crisis. And I was playing intramural soccer and... I don't know, in the uh, flow of the game, some guy on the other team just said, oh, go back to your country, you Iranian, or something to that effect. And what did I do? Uh, I don't think I did anything. I was just dumbfounded and surprised that somebody would say that, and surprised because I was not an Iranian. I had a college classmate, someone in my major yell across the plaza at me without provocation, um, go home, anchor baby. Um, I was one of the few Mexican-American students at my university, and it was totally, totally shocking to me. I was a stop in Austin, Texas in the 90s. I was being detained for a suspicion of being illegal, handcuffed, been in a police patrol and was detained for a few hours and then they let me go. And it was basically being Mexican looking in the wrong place at the wrong time. 
I am half European-American and half Asian-American. And even though my English ancestor had come over in 1692 or so to Massachusetts, since I look Asian, I was often told uh, I have to go, you know, I should go back to China or you are not an American. So to hear Trump say that you should go back, I mean, it's like the oldest schoolyard taunt that children way back in the 50s were doing. And, you know, he's doing it to this very day. It's, it's basically for anybody who doesn't look like a white European American, and they're considered not a real American. <laughs> That was Fernando Urbina, Sofia Carrillo, Javier Isasi, Linda, and Christy Tada. And there was one other voice that we did not identify. After the president's rally last night, that person asked us to withhold their name. They wrote, After seeing those people chanting, I just am fearful. I'm just afraid. We thank all of them for sharing their stories. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. You can learn more about the stories in today's show at postreports.com and join the conversation online using the hashtag postreports. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, the Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Classes in session. Find Try This from the Washington Post wherever you listen.